Hey, you're listening to Solid Sound, and today we are talking tunes with, with Sam Fez. Hey, Sam, how you doing, mate? I'm pretty good, thanks, Christy. How are you? I'm good, thanks, mate. Yeah, it's a nice sunny afternoon. So, uh, what better thing to do than sit back and uh, enjoy a bit of talking tunes? Exactly. Yeah, you're starting out here with uh, the prodigy Jericho. That's an interesting selection. So, yeah, thanks. Uh, it's obviously living in Essex, growing up here you cannot explain the importance of Prodigy. I swear everyone in every surrounding town I've lived in has got a story about them from back in the day. I think one of my mates, Dave, was living in Keith Flint's house. Keith Flint was his landlord until he passed away the other year. Yeah, they're they're just intrinsically linked with everything that goes on here and dance music, really. They're from like Romford or somewhere near there, aren't they? Uh, they're from Braintree, which is sort of down the road from Colchester, where Love Love is based. John, he lives in Braintree at the moment these days. Yeah, it's this very strange place. They've, they've always had a really unique sort of free party scene. And yeah, and it always ends up with Prodigy being played at the after parties. They're a great band to be really into. They've got some pretty kick-ass tracks and history. So would you have known them from back in the day? Like, say, I'd imagine you've got a long history in music, right? Uh, well, I'm, I'm far too young. I'm, I'm 32, so I'm 33 this year. But uh, my parents, they went and followed them sort of back in the day. They've got these stories about going to raves and fields, you know, before the prodigy broke big and things. So, yeah. So you're, you're 32 going on 33. I know I look a bit younger, got a bit of anorexic baby face, but yeah. Now I'm just noticing looking through your track list, Nick, because you got a butthole surface track on here. And, uh, you know, I, I always like when people do talking tunes and they don't go for the really obvious tracks, because I think Butthole Surface is a great track there called 22 Going On 23. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Yeah, yeah. It's a fantastic one. So when you say 32 Going On 33, like... <laughs> Oh man, Battle Surfers are amazing. I, I couldn't not put a track of theirs in this today, to be honest. They've inspired me a lot over the years. So we've got an interesting selection. We've got a mixture of rave and non-rave, really. That's how I classify my music. I don't know how you classify it. <laughs> I've got my, that's how I organize my music. I've got rave music and non-rave music. That's my folders. It's a good way to be. I mean, I, I guess I'm actually sort of, I'm really into what we used to think of as pop music. You know, I've, I've always listened to songs and I, I guess I categorise things as pop music and non-pop music. You know, I've, I've fell into being involved in pretty experimental music, I guess. But yeah, I've, I've always been a real big fan of vocals and lyrics and things like that. I, I like to listen to that sort of music still. So Chumba Wumba, Tub Thumping, does that go in pop music or not pop music? I'm really putting you on the spot. 100% pop music. But the rest of their catalogue is like, it's so punk and underground, isn't it? Yeah, you're actually right there. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Um, yeah, they're very folksy, aren't they? They're, uh, they're other, other stuff. Uh, I'm not too familiar with their other work, to be honest. It's, uh, it's all about Tub Thumping. 
so we've moved on to another tune now. We're on to Apex Twin Xtel. Yeah, uh, I've I've always thought this tune as being called Crystal. Okay. I mean, Apex is so important to so many people. I could probably do a talking tunes just about Apex Twin tracks. In all honesty, uh, I decided to go with this one because, to my knowledge, it's the first Apex Twin tune that I remember really liking on uh, my stepdad's sort of CD collection. The Selected Ambient Works albums are, you know, they're pretty incredible to just stick on and for whatever mood or situation. And yeah, this this track in particular has always been one that's really stuck out for me. You know, it's, uh, it's track one on the album. And I think the vocals are by Aphex himself, but they obviously sound like, you know, really beautiful, heavenly, girl vocals and yeah I just love it it's, it's like if the song giving you a big cuddle I like that idea of audio cuddles <laughs> and the, the warmth you can get from music like you know yeah yeah. Uh, and of course Apex there's not much to be said about him that hasn't been said already right I mean the guy's an absolute legend um, yeah makes amazing music I'll say yeah he's a he's an incredible artist hope he uh, gets back to what he was making the turn of the millennium a bit more though I'd be really excited if he had a, a new era of that kind of stuff again that'd be just what music needs right now I think Syro album out. Do you remember that one? Yeah. And I think he said we had a whole load of music that was built up. He put it out on the album. He said after that, I'm going to change up my style. But I don't think anything new came out after that. I'm trying to think. Maybe you know better than I do. Yeah. No, you're you're right. I mean, he sort of did the acoustic EP with using robot drummers and things. Uh, it's a bit a bit different from his other work. He did the the DJ Select EP as well, which is sort of quite quite dance floor friendly for him uh, it's great great music but i think a lot a lot of people were aching to hear him really tear things up again you know with with modern technology and synths and software and stuff it'd be amazing to hear what he'd do if he was to really unleash that sort of sound again and i'd say you must have very good memories of seeing him live various places uh, yeah, the first time was uh, it's, it's still my favourite time. Probably my favourite sort of club performance was at Mata, I think in 2008. I went with a couple of really good mates at the time. I still, one of them runs the label with me and it was, you know, one of them nights, just real good raving experience, take a bit of acid and yeah, it was, I think it was a whole reflex night and that like Dave Monolith tracks were being played by Grant and it was really exciting. And Luke Vibert played after and he opened with White Lines, which was just perfect after the the mess that Aphex had sort of left before him. And uh, it was a fantastic night. I saw him at Bangface as well, obviously, and that was fucking legendary, you know. I could well imagine. One of those gigs I wish I'd have been at. 2012, wasn't it? In Cambertans, you know? Yeah, I think it was uh, the one in Cornwall. Yeah, we was in a caravan, which is different for Bangface, but still, it was, it was great. Every Bangface is thoroughly enjoyable, but that one was extra special, yeah.
know, we're going to go through these tunes in no time. We're on to Faithless Baseball Cap. And I mean, I think Faithless 7 goes, oh, yeah, that tune, uh, that Insomnia tune, yeah? Yeah. Why did you pick Baseball Cap? Well, this is it. I mean, like, Faithless is easily one of my favorite bands. You know, Maxi Jazz's vocals are incredible. Uh, I, I love thinking of him as a rapper, and I love the songs that really flex that a lot more. This song's a real great song about knowing when to pick your battles. Probably something I should have uh, listened to a bit a bit more when I was younger. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's just an incredible track. It's stuck with me since I was about six or seven years old. The, the scream in the chorus, the like, ah! It's, yeah, it's just a cool tune. Love everything about it. I, th- I would urge people to check out some of the older Faithless non-trance tracks because they're, they're, they're wicked. Yeah, it's why yeah, I like doing the talking tunes because like that, you know, you listen to stuff that you wouldn't normally listen to, uh, hear someone's point of view on it and go, oh yeah, I should really dig into that a little bit more, like you say, with Faithless. I think everyone knows the insomnia tune and, and probably doesn't pay much attention to the rest of it. So yeah, I mean, it's good to bring this out to people, isn't it? Yeah, certainly. I mean, insomnia is like, you couldn't go anywhere in the 90s without hearing that track any somewhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a big tune, that's for sure. I love their other rave tracks as well, like We Come One. I think there's like a 10 minute mix of that that's, yeah, I listen to that all the time as well. It's epic and just great synthesis going on and amazing melodies and stuff take the champion to walk and keep walking drink your drink let the words sink in say good night to your ma and think again so i took my 14 years up to bed everything you said taking root in my head i shed all my tears and let my 14 years And then on to the next tune, how you pronounce that one then? Isan? Remigo? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's uh, Isan or Isan. I'm not not entirely sure if, if I'm honest. I actually chat to one of the guys online. Maybe that's one of the things I should ask him. But this, this track was on a sort of weird compilation release of theirs uh, called Clockwork Menagerie. But this track in particular is, I feel it's the unofficial theme song to the show Ideal, if you've ever come across that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so with uh, Johnny Vegas, um, Graham Duff, mm-hmm. it's my, my favorite television show ever. It, it's, it was left unfinished, but it's seven or eight seasons of just pure creativity. And Graham Duff, the writer, he selects a lot of the music for the show himself. And this track is used, it's always used in very strange scenes, you know, when something quite chaotic or morbid has happened and it'll be like, you know, the, the next day and everyone's sort of, you know, reflecting or looking a bit sad or whatever. And I, I don't know, it's just real, 
really like this tune. <laughs> I don't know, it's just beautiful ambient music. reasons I wanted to get you on here Sam was obviously because I think you've got a huge history with music uh, I mean you're running the, the record label Love Love which in fairness is putting out amazing stuff all the time so it's quite clear to see you know you've got a deep love for music oh thanks mate I, I, I can imagine you sitting there you know in your own chair or whatever just sitting there and actually taking the time to listen to music whereas most people we listen to it in the background right uh, I, I don't know I mean I, I listen to a lot of music in the background as well for sure but I definitely am one of them people that gets a bit too into music it's been said um, yeah you know like I think it provides like uh, it helps you explain the world a bit and it helps me make sense of things listening to songs and as I said I really like all different kinds of music uh, it just so happens that I work predominantly in rave music I guess I was out of rave for quite a good while um, and then about ooh, 12 years ago I started getting back into it and I think one of the first things that really got my attention was Beatwife's release that came out on Love Love it was a CD that came out oh blimey and that was the first time I'd ever discovered Bandcamp and God knows how I found Beatwife uh, <laughs> 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 I how I found Bandcamp but I remember buying that CD and I still got it in the car because you know sometimes you've got to have something in the car right Oh, that's amazing. Cars are my favourite place to listen to music, in fact. That really got me back into the rave big time. So, you know, I owe you that debt of gratitude, which probably you may not realise, you know? Oh, blimey, no, I didn't realise that. Thank you so much. That's lovely to hear. Um, Richard would really love to hear that as well, I'm sure. Uh, I know it. Yeah, I told him that yeah, before, yeah. Oh, amazing. I mean, I guess you are aware he changed from the Beatwife alias because uh, being called Beatwife wasn't really the easiest thing to promote. And what did he change his name to? Uh, he changed it to Ronald. It's spelt, it's like a Scandinavian spelling. I, th- I, I believe that was his dad's name, I think. Ah, I didn't know. Yeah, so I think that's why he's adopted that name and spelling. And uh, he seems to be doing a lot better for it. I know that promoters used to say, and rightfully so, I guess, that, you know, that why, why would they want to put Beatwife on a flyer? It's not going to, it's not going to attract uh, many people to come and party, you know. So, uh, yeah, he's, he made that decision a few years ago. See, whenever I play his stuff, I always just refer to him as Roggenwald. I see. <laughs> yeah, I've had, I've, had, uh, I've had a lot of people say things like that with me. So, similar with John as well. They, they will sort of say uh, Dagon or... Dijon. Dijon, that's another one. That's quite a funny one. But, yeah, it's just, just John. Yeah, I, 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 you don't really think about that when you're putting together a release online that it's probably quite hard to say. Yeah, you can't you kind of assume that people will know, but I guess not always. <laughs>
So I'm going to put you on the spot, Sam. Sure thing. As, as I can tell here, right, I can only see one artist on this whole list that's actually on your label. Why is there no Ruby My Dear on here? Why is there no Beat Wife? Where are these guys? Well, um, I, I could probably put about a thousand tunes on a list. There, there was so many. There was so many that I just thought, oh, you know, should I? Yeah. Should I put that on? Should, should I do Kate Bush or Peter Gabriel? Oh, I can't decide. Um, but then when it came to people from my own label, I decided that I didn't. I didn't really want to sort of say, oh, you know, this this track that I've released has changed my life, and because they all have. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's why I put them out. I love them. Um, the one I, I have included, I, I assume you're referring to the Eli Muff track. No, I was referring to Chevron because you had a release from Chevron on Love Love. Oh, uh, yeah, I see. No, um, yeah, okay, so I've probably let that slip now that we're doing some Eli Muff music. Ah, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, that, that Chevron track, it's obviously completely different to the tracks that we've released, but that album on Planet Mew, everything is exactly the same, is such a unique album. I don't think anyone will ever make or put out an album like that again, so massive props to Planet View for that. I mean, I'm not so much into what they've done in the last 10, 12 years, but certainly their mid-naughty stuff will always be very important to me. We did an album by Chevron. It's sort of more of a down-tempo thing to it. I might be misremembering this, but I think he sort of thought of it as an early morning road trip album. And so, you know, the artwork reflects that a bit. But this, this Planet Mew album's crazy. It's pretty it goes all over the place you know there's like cutting edge sound design there's novelty sort of tracks there's banging rave track as well in emails and viruses is really superb varied album that i can't help but feel is a little bit underrated easily one of my favorite on planet mew So right now we're into Butthole Surfer's Dust Devil. Yeah, I don't know, man. I think I think this is the coolest track ever. <laughs> I just think the way Paul, Paul Leary's guitar is like, he's insane, man. Do you know what I mean? He's got that whammy going everywhere. The song is basically just one riff with like, yeah, just just guitars flying all over the place on top of it and makes you think of you know riding in the desert in nevada on a, a big cadillac or motorbike or something and uh you know off into the sunset on mescaline or some crazy shit like that it's, yes it's just uh if, if people coming around wanting to party that would probably be a track i put on at the peak i'd say yeah bile surf is a incredible band I'd, I'd love to see them live one day though they might not be the same as they were back in the day quite an old band at this point I, I i think i think they're around in the 80s and certainly the 90s anyway um like early early american hardcore punk band yeah exactly they were just too weird to ever really fit in with anyone i think and over the by the time the 90s came along they were just 
their own entity completely. I, I can't really think of anyone I could compare them to, in all honesty. And anyone that would like to... I, I don't know, like, uh, I, they're, they're, they're a pretty hard band to try and emulate. I, don't, I think their style is pretty untouchable, really. Touched a bit on the love, love there. Um, tell us. I mean, I've asked you a straight up question about it. I mean, when did you get that label started? So uh, it was back when I was in school uh, and I was in bands and stuff. Uh, there was this guy, Danger Dempster. He would sort of pretend to be our manager, I guess, and get us gigs and promote us quite a bit. And he, he used to pretend that we were signed to this record label called Love, Love Records, and. Uh, and so it just sort of fell into place from that really. We, uh, when we was working on putting out our own compilations and stuff, our gigs, we just said it was under Love Love Records and then as we got older, we just went on from there, I guess. And where did the name Love Love come from? I've got no idea, you'd have to ask him. <laughs> so it was a real fake it until you make it sort of scenario? Uh, possibly. <laughs> I, think, I think we just, uh, we didn't really care about what sort of name it was under. We were more interested in the music that we were doing, I suppose, and he'd built up this mystique for us already, so I guess that's how it went. I don't mean love this love, 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 but just, you know, whenever you name anything, like even solid sound, when I started that out, I was like, oh, it's a gimmick, it might not last that long. Whereas I think the longer you stick at it, it's like, oh, shit, no, I really feel like it becomes something, you know, the, the more you work at it. Yeah, of course, yeah. These sort of projects that people do, you know, over the years they gain traction and I suppose you couldn't remember it any other way now. Like, you know, for this, this, this show, for example, I've been listening to in the Talking Tunes now for what, is it just under a year? Yeah, about that, yeah, for the actual Talking Tunes thing I've been doing, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's sort of, I've enjoyed enough of the episodes now for it to be like, oh, that's like, Talking tunes presented by Kushti, and he's going to get in. He's going to get in some wicked people, and it's going to be quite insightful. And you know, I really enjoyed the the Mark Archer one. That's really good listen, to be honest. Oh, thank you, Sam. Much appreciated. Yeah, no worries. And uh, just if you listen to them, then you know where everyone's picked a square pusher tune. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose that's the the scene we're involved with. Again, he's he's quite an important. Again, he's done quite a lot of different styles and moods and yeah it's just fucking great music do you know <laughs> so this tune now beep street uh, why'd you pick this one out of the catalog um again this was like similar with the apex selection it would be really difficult to pick a single square pusher tune 
but this was probably the first square pusher track I really fell in love with. Track one on Hard Normal Daddy. I think I heard it because a friend of mine in school when I was 15 was making money shoplifting and yeah, it was just, someone said to him like, oh, if you, if you go nick that square pusher CD, Sam Fez will give you a fiver for it. And that, that's how I, I got into it, basically. <laughs> so if Square Pusher, uh, you ever meet him at Bank Face or something like that, he'd be like, Oi, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I owe him twelve ninety nine from HMV retail sale. Well, in, re- in reality, his royalties from CD sales would be like one euro or one pound per disc. So you owe him a quid or two, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. If ever I was to meet him, I'll, I'll buy him a drink. Yeah, then everyone would be good, yeah. <laughs>
So look, I want to quickly introduce the next one, which is going to come in any second now. The toe cutter one. But I've never heard this one. And then when I heard this one, I'm like, wow. What an epic tune. This best party ever with Corey. It's brilliant. Oh man, this tune literally brings tears of joy to my eye every time. I think it was probably the most overplayed tune me and my mates played between the ages of like 16 and 18. And it always made any party or session or, you know, night out just completely ridiculous when you play that. I love the bit at the end where he's like, the, the interviewer said, so if he was organising a party, what advice would you, would you give? And he's like, get me to organise it. Best party ever. I think um, that was like something that happened in Australia like I guess 15 years ago like this kid just put on a street party and then it ended up getting far too out of control and thousands of people turned up and crazy damages and then afterwards he sort of went into hiding and his parents were really pissed off and he refused to give interviews without his glasses and yeah just, just a real like early sort of internet thing and then Tokar he had the track already I think and then he made an edit where he spliced up extra bits into it including this interview with Corey and yeah it's just bloody hilarious <laughs> I think he organised the party at his house while his parents were on holiday and he put it on Facebook and it was public or something and it just as you say it went viral and yeah. mayhem ensued don't quote me on this but I think he ended up getting like a livelihood out of it putting parties on for people and it's a beautiful story, man. <laughs> this song's got really unusual choices of fills, just like slapping in sound effects when you'd usually have like breaks or glitches and things is just properly ridiculous and and the the call and the gang samples as well is it's yeah just very very uplifting music it doesn't take itself seriously at all and uh yeah the, I, I miss i miss the days when i probably listened to just exclusively ridiculous music when i was about 16 17 and yeah, it's a very, very fun, happy time. What would you say to other kids who were thinking of partying when their parents are out of town? Get me to do it for you. I never really know what style of music this is though. Like I always call this mashcore. So Tokata, I think he calls it house music. <laughs> His thing is he gets on the mic and he's like, hey guys, do you like house music? And then just plays the most ridiculously distorted, horrible noise stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's, not, it's obviously not house music, but I, I'd, love to, I'd love to meet him. He sounds like right funny bastards. <laughs> I saw him at Bankface in Amsterdam. Guy was crazy. He was like up on the stage with a strobe light and all sorts of doing more of a performance than a set, you know? I would have loved to have gone to that. 
I guess it's, it's sort of verging on performance art, but it's having it enough to to have a, have a good dance to with your mates and you know chuck pints in the air and stuff like that. I suggest you go away and uh, take a good long hard look at yourself. I have. Everyone has. They love it. Best party ever. So sticking in the vibes of uh, Mashcore, you've gone for what I would consider the Don Daddy of Mashcore, Shitmat. Oh yeah, oh yes, he's the, the undisputed heavyweight champion of Mash, isn't he really? Yeah, he's, uh, he's a good lad. I love Henry Spitz, he's easily one of my most favourite musicians ever. Um, I, I wish he put more music out there for people. Yeah, again, I wouldn't really know where to start with selecting a shitmat track, but I think I think this one overall is my favourite. Yeah, I like this one because it's got like that, these bits here where it's like the old school rave going on as well as you know it's a dance tune. You could actually dance to this, you know, on the dance floor. It's got a combination of everything, you know. Yeah, I mean, I used to sneak in as many shitmat tracks from around this era in just sort of your more standard jungle sets uh, that I used to sort of DJ at in Colchester. I don't know, they, they always have a sort of a swagger to them and a, they're really fun, do you know what I mean? Like loads of character and like, the, the little sounds of him sort of scratching and stuff like that and the, the mistakes of the vinyl noises that are deliberately left in and all. Yeah, it's just, just great fun, like real cheeky music. I'm actually enjoying those sort of stabby sort of sounds that we just had there. It's great. I love it. I'm not too sure. I, I think they might be sampled from something from The Sound of Music. I remember watching it once a few years ago, and one of the one of the tracks started with that arpeggiated melody, and I might have just been making that up, though, you know. Yeah, shit, shit, Matt's great. I would, I would love him to return. You know, playing gigs again. Obviously, when Corona's all over, that would that would be really special if, if he was into the idea again. I don't know who's booked to play uh, Bang Face Weekend uh, 2019. I sound like a real nerd here now. The return of Shitmat. Yeah, no, I, I remember I, I made sure I was uh, front centre for that. That was a Thursday, I think, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he he play, basically played uh, all the hits as well, which I don't think I've ever seen Henry play like that, you know. I always think of... Uh, you know, someone like Bob Geldof, you know, like, oh, I don't, don't, don't play my hits. And... Yeah, it was, it was great to see him drop in all of, all of the most well-known tracks that he's done. And, you know, the crowd really vibing with it and loving it. Because I know he, he sometimes likes to deliberately play uh, track, you know, mash DJing and... Um, I suppose that's that's what you go and see DJ Shitmat for, but it is nice to hear him play straight up Shitmat tracks as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Uh, what sort of music would you call this now? It's, it's like it was pop music, right? But I'm not sure how well it did in the charts. It's a bit like performance art in terms of music, in that it's trying to tell you a story, isn't it? KLF are a really important band to me. I, I've, I've loved them for many years and I try and find out as much as I can about them. I'm a bit of a super fan, to be honest. I'll sort of go and see Bill Drummond do one of his talks on whatever art he's doing at the moment with a vague hope of trying to understand the KLF a bit more. This track, I think, is maybe one of the first sort of full-on acid techno tracks to, you know, sort of how we hear the genre these days. Yeah, it's just just a great track, and KLF are obviously famous for burning a million pounds. But I would urge everyone to really check out their back catalogue. Albums like Chill Out are pretty seminal. They've done all sorts of crazy side projects as well. You can spend weeks finding out all their material and listening to it, and enjoying it. It's great stuff. As a piece of performance art, I think burning a million pounds is a bit extreme, isn't it? But uh, it certainly sends a message. I'm not too sure what that message is. I'm not sure if it's, we've got a million pounds to burn, <laughs> or burn all money, I don't know. To be honest, I'm sort of led to believe that it's that there's more to it than the story suggests, if I'm honest. Um, I've heard, I've heard rumours that it was a, a tax scam to get out of paying a load of tax. Um, there's, there's all kinds of reasons that people have put forward over the years, but I don't think we'll ever really know the truth behind it, personally. I suppose if you had a business and you made an operating loss of a million pounds, then you would deduct that off your tax bill or something like that. I don't know anything about tax law, so yeah, <laughs> you might be right there. Yeah, yeah, this is this is it. There does seem to be things like the acceptance in lieu scheme. Uh, I know some people have mentioned that could be something to do with that but uh, I think I think the sort of the memory of them burning a million pounds though is people don't think about the ins and outs of it it's just sort of a, a quite an awesome act that they did or well allegedly did they I mean who confirmed it as well that's the other thing because someone said to me oh yeah I just burnt a million pounds you're like well is it just the top layers of a million pounds and the inside bits just paper or what you know well, this this is it. They they obviously they filmed it and then they took it to forensic scientists afterwards. They sort of said how much the uh, original value was. It's, it's all it's lots of smoke and mirrors, but uh, it's a kick-ass story either way. <laughs> tax talk. Never thought we'd be discussing tax talk on this show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although everything, we talk about everything, man. Again, so going back to this tune, right? It's grim up north. Your man's reading out a whole list of towns and cities up north. I can't really speak to many of them. Southport, I know, is pretty pretty grim from what I've seen of it. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he goes through uh, like Halifax, and I think he's just quite proud of the North. I don't, I can't really comment on on that though, to be honest. <laughs> And this one is a bit of an interesting one. It's a great tune, this one. This granddaddy, he's simple, he's dumb, he's the pilot. Why did you pick this one out? Yeah, I, I just love this song. I always have. It's, uh, I think it, I first heard it back on Trigger Happy TV. I think it was used quite a lot in that TV show. Um, yeah, they're just a really great band. And this is uh, from their first album. Uh, software slump, I think it's called. Really long, progressive sort of track, and all kinds of different parts in it. Lovely piano melodies, and yeah, some real, some deep lyrics as well. Some good stuff. 
I unfortunately did some of my uh, murdering of art by cutting this down. I don't know how much I cut this down. I think it was about 10 minutes or something, or 8 minutes long. I cut this down to about 5. Yeah, yeah, I think this is uh, the, the second half of the track playing. It's, yeah, it's got some, some really nice bits in it, really nice arrangements and sequences. And really soft, lovely sounds as well. I wonder where this came out. Yeah, I think maybe 2000, 2001. That's a really old track now. So it's, it's just one of them tracks that's always in constant rotation. I just jumped onto Discogs. Apparently, an American indie rock band from Modesto, California, formed in 1992. They split up in 2006. And there you go. Oh, blimey, I didn't realise they'd been around that long, to be honest. No. I'm assuming I got the right band on Discogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's, there's, there's probably not too many bands called uh, Granddaddy. I remember it was uh, part of the, the beard rock craze when that was a thing many years ago. Bands like these and Flaming Lips and stuff like that. Yeah, it just came out in 2000, 2000 on the dot. There you go. Turn of the Millennium. It was an interesting time, the turn of the Millennium, wasn't it? Um, I always remember thinking, you like that? It's like, what, 2021? I always remember thinking, like, wow, you know, obviously flying cars, cars is a bit of a cliche. <laughs> Nothing much has changed, really, in 30 years. Like, because in the night, you're just thinking, oh, you know, the Millennium's coming. And then it was like, meh. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's been quite quite underwhelming. <laughs> yeah, uh, the music industry sort of seemed to uh, collapse in on itself shortly after that, and I kind of see everything after that as it rebuilding a little bit. There's certainly uh, different tactics used by record labels and things like that. It's not, not the same as it was growing up. Yeah, I quite like how things are so... Producers can sort of make a track and get it online within the day. That's just, you know, it's very exciting. I think shortly after after that was in the MySpace area was one of the most exciting times in music ever, to be honest. And a lot of that music seems to have gone forever now. It's quite upsetting, to be honest. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, you know, the barrier to Spotify is not that much of a hurdle to jump over. It's easy enough to get your stuff up on there and, and pretty much any other platform like iTunes and all the rest of it. So, like you say, it's interesting as well the way we've gone from physical media to digital media. Yeah, yeah. Like, because I mean, obviously, you love love, right? I mean, you're doing the physical, you're doing the vinyl, right? Yeah, to be honest, we don't do a release unless it can have some sort of physical. But obviously, as years go by, that, that might change in time. I mean, already there's sort of, we've been talking amongst ourselves and uh, records, they're taking like six months at least to press at the moment. So who knows what will happen in 10 years time? You know, we might have to look to digital only formats or just something new altogether. I mean, the thing with CDJs coming in, like, you know, let's say, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. You're kind of thinking, oh, well, that's the end of vinyl, but, you know, it's still going strong 2020, thereabouts. Uh, you wonder, is it ever going to phase out? Like, I would have thought it would phase out 20 years ago, but... I, I'd agree. I, I, I mean, I'm surprised that vinyl's sort of back and kicking in the way it is, but with the pressing plants and so many delays these days, it's, it's not something that everyone can be certain about we've just got to hope some people invent some new machines i guess because I, th I think there's only 
half a dozen in Europe or something that people have got access to at the moment. And obviously the majors are just, they're repressing Pink Floyd's albums and... And they're selling them for 30 quid, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and it just it just stops all of the smaller labels uh, getting priority at the plants. You know, they get told that they're at the back of the queue, but that's the way things are. I, I never get people going into, like, HMV or whatever and spending 25 quid on a, like, you know, Led Zeppelin album when you could go crate digging at your local record fair and probably pick up it up for two quid, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's that whole crate digging things... Uh, disappearing I guess even when you go to record fairs the you know the the dealers are sort of it's not not the same they, they mark up everything so expensive these days and really wow yeah I guess, I guess it's a sort of it's a different kind of people buying records as 20 30 years ago I guess We've just gone from that nice mellow, you know, you could go to sleep and relax and have a cocoa granddaddy to pure chaos of Ali Muff, right? <laughs> <laughs> Hold tight, the P, no need for London. Yeah, this this is a, a quality track. I, I, I may have slipped earlier that we should hopefully be releasing this at some point, um, which I'm really happy about. We're going to put together a bunch of Mark's old Eli Muff productions and sort of put them out in a archive way with hopefully a 12 inch of the most select cuts yeah i'm very excited about that he's such an amazing producer i wish he was sort of still doing the rounds on the gig circuit i remember he, he was my favorite guy to go and see full stop in my teens yeah i'd, I'd sort of travel down to london from essex just to, just to go and see Eli muff really if i'm honest superb producer he played Bangface 2017. Yeah. See, I met him there. He's a sound lad. I know him quite well as well. He's really passionate about the music, but I wonder if he, he's got to that stage where he's like, oh, <laughs> I, I, need a, I need to sit down and a cup of tea. You know, maybe he'll, maybe he'll bring a <laughs> second life into himself and, and, like I say, get back into it. Like, Yeah, I really hope so. I mean, um, as you say, we, we, we got him down for Bangface 2017. I think I was... Oh, that was you guys. Nice one. Yeah, I think I was hassling James probably about 10 years to try and get, get him to, uh, to book him. And in the end, we, we got him down to uh, for the last set of a, a Love Love showcase. And I was, I was over the moon with that. It was, yeah, really, really tremendous getting him down after all these years. Yeah, because I mean, for a long time there, you were doing the Love Love takeovers in, in the Queen Vic, weren't you? How many years were you doing that? Uh, I, think, I think we might have done three or four in the end. Uh, we we sort of we, we usually had some sort of presence uh, the weekenders and then uh, yeah James, James got us to do some takeovers it was, it was very fun a little quite stressful when you're sort of doing it all in a, a rave environment and we didn't really know what to expect but yeah ho- hopefully there'll be more of that one day absolutely yeah be wicked man I think what you always brought to that was because you knew you had the stage and you had the space. You know, you could take risks with some of the artists you put on there, and that's where you're pushing the envelope, right? Yeah, we, we brought Henge along, sort of a, a space rock band. I, I know that they've gone on to play on their own at Bangface since, but 
We, we brought On A Snop as well, or I think they were Famine the year before, but it's the same band members, sort of grindcore band, and that was the year before Napalm Death played. I thought that was incredible, getting, getting that sort of music down at Bangface. I know it's not the sort of thing they're known for, but I think a lot of the audience uh, from those kinds of punk backgrounds, so it sort of goes down really well and quite unexpected as well. It's a nice surprise. Yeah, I can see Bangface slowly moving towards that sort of stuff a little bit. Uh, that Kildren were on the last year. Yeah, definitely the room for a bit of punk and a bit of hardcore in there. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd say so. I mean, I know I know a lot of my friends that I've met at Bangface. I, I know that we sort of had that shared musical background when we came to going to Bangface. So yeah, it'd be, it'd be nice to uh, put a little bit of that back in. Obviously, things like Atari Teenage Riot and Alec Empire and Digital Hardcore is quite easy to sling in that sort of lineup. But yeah, it would be it'd be amazing to see some some just real crazy music. Ever you know, guitar-based music occasionally, perhaps. So I really enjoyed this tune here from Ellie Muff. Um, what I like about his style is sort of sound system music. It's kind of like hard tech in its structure, but then it's also a little bit like breakcore in its chaoticness, you know? He's got a real mixture of everything going on there. Oh yeah, totally. I, I used to think of it as the, the sound of London squat parties, I guess. Yeah, you know, like even on a clean system, it's still sort of quite distorted and abrasive. And yeah, I mean, I, I guess, from old suicide rigs at squat parties the level of quality of the hi-fi wasn't always great so yeah it's just sort of designed to be pelted out of a rig i guess <laughs> that's the way to do it isn't it man yeah it's great stuff So we're on to another tune now, two pack until the end of time. Uh, this was a real curveball as well. You got some real. That's why I love you on here, mate, because you got some real curveballs. That's <laughs> nice one. Two pack. I, I wouldn't listen to this at all myself. What does two pack mean to you, man? Oh, blimey! Yeah, I, I, I love two pack, man. I really. <laughs> It'll be 25 years since he his uh his death this year. And again, I, I could I could sort of list 100. Well, I think he did about 300 odd songs in total, but. I could probably put about 50 to 100 that I, I listen to quite a lot. This is one of my real favourites of his. I think it came out 2000, 2001 after he died. I found out recently that it was actually produced by Eminem, surprisingly. I don't quite know what the story is there. I think he might have just been given access to the tapes to do what he pleased with. But yeah, it's just an amazing song. It, the chorus is from that Mr. Mr. track. You know, re resampled or reperformed, I should say. And uh, yeah, I just, I just think that the, the sort of death row, two-pack phenomena is a real big thing in music. Like they, those guys sort of reinvented how how music worked, I guess. Um, how it was marketed and promoted, and even just the 
the recording processes and yeah he's a, a real talent I think what's interesting as well maybe I'm missing the big point right but I think what's interesting is the east coast west coast vying against each other sort of thing I don't know how much that's manufactured or how much that's real but I suppose if it ended up with two people dying which probably maybe more did too that's taking a bit real right yeah that, that's just it I mean I think it all got out of hand and as you say you know how much of it was manufactured and how much of it was real I guess it became a bit of a standalone complex eventually once uh, once it was all out there and you had you know young people from each side sort of picking sides I guess yeah it all got out of hand and then I think about a week before he died he did an interview with Suge Knight where he was talking about uh, Death Row East which was going to be like the East Coast contingent of Death Row Records and there was going to be a band I think it was going to be called uh, One Nation it would have been a hip hop super group with Tupac and Nas and Biggie and the lot but unfortunately that never ended up happening as we know you know that would have been amazing for all the hip hop fans out there sort of you know all, all the greats sort of working together on a big vision because I think it's, you know, sometimes manufactured conflict in music, I think people are interested in it to some extent. And I wonder if the conflict between post-breakcore and breakcore will end in violence, or do you think it can be sorted out amicably? <laughs> do you see, see you like that as a segue, man? It's pretty smooth, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that was brilliant. That was amazing. Um, yeah, no, I think, I think we, can all, we can all get on very well, and uh, yeah, we can all, all hold hands and have a big cuddle at the end of it. Absolutely. I think that's all fine. Uh, to, to be honest, the, the whole the whole post-breakcore thing was uh, some, somewhat of a joke, but somewhat real. Um, yeah, it's funny how that's sort of evolved over the last three or four years, I guess. Breakcore is almost, you know, when you look at the styles of breakcore there are today, it is almost indescribable to compare it to, like you said, digital hardcore. And I think the thing with genres is, you know, a lot of people like to be gatekeepers of genres, and I, and I never really like that myself, although I find myself doing it sometimes. But like, you know, the, what people call early breakcore, digital hardcore sort of stuff, whereas I would call what's being made today is break is breakcore. Um, but then I can imagine from your perspective, because you've been listening to it since day one, you know, you see this, you know, that stuff is breakcore, and then all the new stuff is post-breakcore, which to me makes total sense. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know it's a contentious issue. I know a lot of people sort of talk about it a lot, um, the origins of breakcore and things like that. And I, I can't help but see it as uh, a lot of the, a lot of the early stuff. You know, when it was going through an analog desk, it was uh, really deliberately distorted, and that that was more the point of it rather than. I suppose what what we're doing today is more of a deviation from IDM, in all honesty. But I know the guys I sort of kick about with less less interested in the the distortion and more interested in sort of you know really pushing the frequencies as much as you can take them really. And uh, unfortunately, that's something that's got to be it's got to be really digital. So yeah, it sort of goes against the grain of what Alec Empire and his his crew were saying what breakcore is, I guess. And it felt really difficult sort of being looped in, like sort of grouped up with those those guys. Um, you know, they're, they're obviously doing sort of 
ultra political stuff as well and yeah there's been times where it sort of didn't feel right with uh, the more sound design take on things being lumped in with what was going on in the breakcore world I guess and where would you put extra tone speedcore um, you know as you say IDM where would you put shipmat I mean that is nothing like the original breakcore at all not a lot of it is <laughs> yeah yeah, uh, you're right. I mean, I think I think he described it as uh, mashcore, just completely diving through all the genres. I think there's an interview back in 2006 where he talks about that and uh, he compares his music to Phoenician snares and you know what's going on breakcore at the time. And yeah, because he certainly did reinvent it when he came out all those years ago. But it's all good at the end of the day. I mean, you know, anything that pushes music forward, try and get it into people's ears, right? I'm sure the same yourself. Yeah, yeah, you, you're totally right. Unfortunately, in the internet age, sometimes sort of cynically tagging something as post-break core is one of the ways to get people to check it out. So what's this tune, man? Harry Nielsen? Yeah, Harry Nilsson. He's uh, probably my favourite singer, I'd say. I just think he's every song he's done, he's just, just got incredible voice. So I think he was um, John Lennon's favourite performer as well. Uh, he went on tour with, with those guys and the Beatles a bit. Uh, he's a very interesting guy. He's uh, He did this song, I think, is featured in Goodfellas, if anyone recognises it from that. Just a, a cool as fuck track. I like to put it on when I'm doing my cooking. Yeah, it's uh, very important to me and my my ex-partner as well. We used to listen to it a lot, the mother of my child. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's just a really, really lovely track. I mean, this tune uh, came out in 1971, Jump Into The Fire. Yeah, back in 1971, at, at his peak, I think he moved to London shortly afterwards. He actually sort of stopped doing music after, I think someone died in his flat that he, was, that he had in London. And then when John Lennon was shot, he sort of got into anti-gun activism more than music, which is a shame. So it'd be nice to uh, hear more of his material. And apparently he passed away when he was only 52. That's quite early, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, very untimely. I know that, um, I think because of when Goodfellas came out, I think the labels were planning a bit of a revival of his career. And it was just as that was happening that he passed away, unfortunately. It's terrible.
Bay's just the, the coolest guy. I think the, the cover of this is just him standing in a dressing gown. Uh, it's called Nilshin Smilshin. And uh, yeah, he's just, just a cool guy. from one fantastic singer to another right Kate Bush blimey yeah <laughs> a lot of people would say she's probably one of the most unique singers that's been around really seems like she's in her, her own world every track she does it's, it's amazing escapism uh, this song in particular is, is written about psychologist named Wilhelm Reich and it's from the point of view of his son uh, a book called A Book of Dreams where Kate Bush takes the role of his son he, he's invented loads of, sort of quite far out things in his life and uh, was eventually sort of taken away by the government uh, by the men in black and the music video to this track sort of is has that story sort of play out with Donald Sutherland playing Wilhelm Reich I never knew any of that. Yeah, a lot of stuff. <laughs> All right, taking notes. I must listen to more of Harry Nilsson. I must listen to more Kate Bush. I got to listen to more of this. It's like <laughs> 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 Lots of stuff to follow up on, man. It's really cool. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, Kate Bush. I mean, I think everyone would know of uh, you know some of, some of her main stuff like you know the Wuthering Heights and all that sort of stuff. Um, but she's got a very unique voice, hasn't she? I think um, Bjork said once that she was inspired by her as a singer. I'm not sure. Oh, that that makes total sense, actually. Two musicians that are pretty uncomparable to other people. It, it makes sense that they might, she might be influenced by her, at least in sort of doing her own thing completely. I really love all of this particular gang in music. You know, um, Kate Bush sort of quite affiliated with Peter Gabriel, who's a, another another big favourite of mine. Yeah, because the tune you did have in this slot was Sledgehammer by Peter Gabriel. 
I think this is a better choice, I think, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, to tell you the truth, I, I thought um, I thought this one was probably a little bit more impactful to me. I probably listened to it a bit more as well. And, but yeah, it would be, it'd be very hard to pick between Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush for me. They're, they're sort of both incredible musicians and songwriters, and I can't help but think of them as affiliated together because of all the collaborations they've done over the years. I think he is involved in producing her as well, along with David Gilmore, sort of a fascinating group of songwriters. I think what I like about Kate Bush, and there's lots of singers out there that do this, is they find their own style and they really maximise who they are in their own style. Whereas, you know, if you ever listen to like a lot of pop music, which you know, I'm sure, <laughs> <laughs> or, or watch those X Factor type programmes, they're, they're all trying to be some sort of homogenised, beautiful singer. Whereas, you know, I think uh, Dylan was probably one of the original people who was like, no, actually, I'm going to sing in my own style and my own way, and I'm going to make a real big thing out of that. Um, and I think Kate Bush is obviously one of those people as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She's, she's like a, an artist through and through. Yeah, as I say, completely in her own world, not really caring about what other people think. It feels like she's got this sort of artistic vision right at the beginning of when she's recording her tracks and, you know, getting all the all of her favorite musicians in um, to, to make that happen I think I think as well I'm not too sure but I think it might be her brother as well who's really heavily involved in her music she's, she's completely done her own thing no, no one's sort of told her what to do or uh, tried to change it and yeah I think I think that's how how musicians should be you're right a lot a lot of these new sort of x-factor people they just kind of try and emulate people from the past a bit too much or you know they just try and sing a tuneful song but there's not much artistry in that really i don't want to sound like a, a boomer or anything <laughs> <laughs> i think you're coming from a position of authority because you're so passionate about music and you know i'm looking over your track listing of all these different tunes you've selected it's a wide variety of music and like i say because you haven't gone for all the obvious tunes as well, like for all the artists, none of them are the obvious tunes, perhaps. It shows a deep understanding, right? So I think when you have that position of authority, you can say what you want. Oh, yeah, thanks, uh, perhaps. I'm compared to my dad, for example, who's like, he'll listen to the radio and go, oh, this is good, this isn't good, this is good, this isn't good. It's like, you haven't done any any investigation for yourself, mate, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm sort of a bit jealous of that way of appreciating music. I think, I think when I went to college and uni, um, studying music, it sort of trapped me in this analytical mind a bit too much and I kind of miss the days where I can just sort of sit, sit back and enjoy something for what it is without trying to analyse it too much. Uh, don't shy away from being nerdy about music, mate. I, I, I love, I've fully embraced being... <laughs> I've accepted it. I'm a full-on full music nerd. I want to hear, hear all about it and know all the bits and pieces, like, you know. Hence, talking tunes, man. That's the whole point of it, right? Yeah, yeah, totally, and and that that's what's been so good with the internet. I mean, you you can sort of go on YouTube and spend ages just finding out about music trivia without even necessarily hearing the songs, and all of that's been opened up completely. It, it feels like all of the musicians that we've grown up with, you know, like all of their lives are just, you know, a lot more accessible now, and their history and 
their techniques and songwriting and who they worked with and things like that. It's made it a bit easier. So this is one artist which I think is probably a bit underrated. Chevron. He makes amazing music, man, doesn't he? Yeah, he's totally underrated, man. Um, yeah, what, what can I say? I, I, this is this is one of my favourite albums ever. Um, and this track, Running Out of Time, I, I'm, I'm still aching to hear tracks that I could mix with it. I, I, yeah, I just I just never heard another track like this all these years later. The the rhythm and the way it's put together is it's mental. I wish he'd sort of dip back more into this style to be honest. I know he's gone on a more sort of uh, acid tip, I suppose, over the last 10, 15 years. But yeah, th this album's got it all. It's got, you know, sort of breakcore and rave anthems and um, sort of no novelty pop type stuff as well. It's, it's just it's brilliant. This is the album you were talking about that came out on Planet Mew, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, everything's exactly the same. I think back in, I would say 2006, it might be older to be honest now, I can't quite remember, but um, very old album now and it's, it's very underrated, so I would urge anyone to go check this album out, especially this track and uh, Emails and Viruses as well, it's uh, another one of my favourites. That actually samples Kate Bush as well, um, yeah, he's a, he's a fan I believe. See, to me this is more interesting to listen to than FX Twin. There's a lot more going on, but it's still sort of same sort of vibe, you know. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, so I guess it's a continuation of. I mean, Aphex put out drug use a few years beforehand, and sort of feels like a. Where can we go from there? Actually, yeah, Aphex Twin Drugs is a pretty heavy album, actually, when you compare it. Yeah, man. <laughs> that is. Oh my god, that's like a bloody heavyweight album. Yeah, it, it feels like we're still sort of making sense of it, you know, all of these years later. You know, it's still, I, I don't think it's still fully influenced the sort of, the dance, the raves and stuff that we go to, despite despite everyone, you know, you, you'll be at a rave and lots of people sort of say how that, that album's really important and um, really influential, but yeah, we, we haven't necessarily seen that seep into the dance floor yet. I think it's only a matter of time, in all honesty. Well, there we go, Sam, man. We've come to the end. Could you believe it? 
blimey. It's uh, it's been it's been emotional. That's 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 what that's what we want to tap into, man. The emotion of beautiful music and, and, the, and, the, and the joy it brings to your life, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, that's that's why we do it, right? Absolutely, man. Yeah. All right. Well, cheers, Sam. Thanks for taking the time to set the call and talk to us about music. Yeah, no worries. Thanks a lot, Kishti. Uh, I look forward to hearing more of your shows. Oh, thank you, man. And I uh, look forward to hearing more of your Love Love releases and the Ellie Muff coming out soon and all the rest of it. Cheers, man. Thanks a lot. No worries. Nice one. Take care. Bye. Bye. <laughs>